0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We are talking today about finances and a treasured marriage. Almost every day you can overhear a discussion about money. Some people take a second job to pay for their son's college tuition. Somebody else is discouraged about an upside-down car loan. Some people who buy a house in this market may actually find that soon, they will be upside down in their home loan. A radio show talk uh, talks about debt uh, with his listeners. A couple at a supermarket arguing whether they can afford some of their things in their four or five Costco shopping carts. Uh, well, our personal finances affect the way we live, work schedules, what we do with our free time and influence, what we think about, talk about, day in, day out, so on and so forth. What are most of your money conversations about? What are most of your money conversations about? You don't have any conversations. Yes, Kathy? How much I can save for my car, How much I can save for my car? what else? What other questions, what other discussions might you have? How much what? Yes. How much money is in the account? How much money can I spend? <clears throat> Do we have enough money to make mens meet? How can we pay for an unexpected expense? Can we retire? How to avoid growing my fortune and turning me into a workaholic? You know, moods can change depending on what the stock market is doing, uh, what the current administration is up to, or how many bills are outstanding. Our finances and go on and on, money affects every aspect of our lives, God's financial principles can help us gain control and find peace of mind. Well, the Bible itself has much to say about money. In fact, Jesus talked more about money than even heaven and hell. We should talk about it too, in a healthy, open way founded on biblical truth. 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables deal with money and possessions. Nearly 25% of Jesus' words in the New Testament deal with biblical stewardship. One out of ten verses in the scriptures deal, in the Gospels I should say, deal with money. There are more than 2,000, 2,000 scriptures on tithing, money, and possessions in the Bible. Twice as many as faith and prayer combined. Now, There are a lot of opinions in the church about money and finances, even among spiritually mature followers of Christ. Good people sometimes in the same household disagree on how much to give, the use of debt, and what constitutes a good use of money. In your home, or with your beloved, your fiancé, is there a difference between who is the spender and who is the saver? See a show of hands. You're exactly on the same page, all of you. I see some spouses looking at their beloved and smiling and I'm not certain I'm getting an honest answer here. I am the spender, Kim is the saver. Uh, She saves a lot better than I do, so she's been in charge of our finances. As disciples of Christ, as singles or couples, we must come to an understanding that God has created everything in the world and that we look to him as the source for all of our needs. Learning to submit to his authority in the areas of money allows us to live a life of peace within our hearts, minds, and relationships as he lovingly provides what we need. Now, let's look at some general biblical principles Sometimes we are stuck in a routine financially. We grow accustomed to thinking about our finances in a certain way, and we're not even sure why. That's why it's a good exercise to ask some uncomfortable questions every once in a while as we examine ourselves and why and how we're doing what we do with our finances. So is there somebody in your relationship that does the finances? Is it you or your spouse? In our, in our house, Kim does it. How many of you in your, in your house are responsible for your checkbooks, account balances, that sort of thing? I see some couples that don't even have a, a hand up. That's frightening. Well, stewardship. It is all about stewardship. It's God's money. It's all of it is God's money. We are stewards. Scripture reminds us that our God ultimately owns everything here on earth. Everything we own is from the hand of the Father. Our job is to be responsibly stewards and stewarding the resources that God has given us. We also have the opportunity to bring God glory through the ways we manage our finances. Imagine you arrive in heaven and have an audience with the creator of the universe. What would you say to him about the way you spend his money? What would he say to you? And of course, we all know the passage in Luke chapter 19 about the Lord giving out finances and resources, and there's a stewardship that's accountable, and there's a reward based on how well someone did, and there's also a penalty for those who do not accept his role as the master of the finances that we are to steward. So, we need to accept our role as managers and stewards, since it's our responsibility to submit to the owner, for we will be held accountable. God owns everything, giving us the roles of managers of the money he entrusts to us. So we need to take a step back and think about our attitudes in the area. Is God truly at the center of our financial decisions, or does the word dictate how we spend and enjoy our money. What does our checkbook reflect? If you would look through your checkbook and your account and itemize where the money went to, what does that reflect? Are you going at it from a worldly philosophy or have you adopted sound biblical principles of financial management? We need to remember that money itself is not intrinsically good or bad. Money is not evil. It is a tool given by God for our flourishing. The possession of money is not in itself a bad thing. In fact, it was Paul who often collected funds to care for impoverished Christians. Matter of fact, one of the things we're looking at right now is the possibility of how we might aid those believers in Eldoret, Kenya, based on the feedback that our brother Kier brought back from his recent trip. And this is a way that God can use us to bless others with that. God is the one who gives us the ability to produce wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18 But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as is today. Now, while that is a distinct promise and phrase given to Israel and the covenants of Abraham, the fact remains today. Money is indeed the reward for hard work. Both Jesus and Paul affirm the idea that hard work should be rewarded by a fair wage. Luke chapter 10, 1 Timothy 15. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 5. God is glorified when we apply our gifts and talents to the marketplace and are thus rewarded with remuneration. In fact, the Bible teaches that an entitlement mindset that looks for money without work is a sinful lifestyle. That's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. You remember that there were some who were idle, and they expected to be supported. And you know the phrase, if any man does not work, neither let him eat, right? Well, it is a good thing also to receive wealth from the Lord to receive wealth from the Lord Ecclesiastes 5:19 And it is a good thing to receive wealth from the Lord and the good health to enjoy it to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life this is indeed a gift from God However on the flip side money makes a very poor god a poor idol when worship money plunges souls into spiritual and physical ruin one pastor was found of, fond of saying, there's nothing wrong with having money. It's when money has you. There's nothing wrong with having money. The problem is that when money has you. Paul's word to Timothy about money in 1 Timothy chapter 6 was not an indictment of money, but a warning to the danger of worshiping money. And you know the passage. Godliness is a means of great contentment when accompanied, great gain when accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, therewith we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is what? a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, this doesn't just happen to the wolves of Wall Street. It can happen to anyone anyone when money becomes our driving influence, our passion, our idol. And by the way, boys and girls, this can happen when you don't have a lot of money. It's not just the wealthy the poor can also make an idol out of money and wealth. We should follow the apostles' advice and hold our resources loosely. We brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. You know the old saying about how many hearses are followed with a trailer. There ain't a lot. There ain't a lot. When money is a god... It fuels attitudes like greed and envy and robs us of joy. Whoever loves money never has enough. Ecclesiastes 5.10, the one who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor one who loves abundance with its income. This too is futility. We're also told in Matthew, again a familiar passage, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Proverbs 8, 15, verse 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Sometimes the desire for money and funds will drive us to do unethical things, strictly forbidden by the Spirit of God. And we should avoid that tendency to, And recognize that if we're tempted like that, we have elevated money to an unhealthy role. To that end, as we look at other people, where they are financially, where in the providence of God they find themselves, we must remember that scripture and not culture should shape our views of those who are rich and those who are poor. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 7 says this, the Lord makes poor and rich. He humbles. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage heap to sit them with nobles. And he gives them a seat of honor as an inheritance. Proverbs 22 verse 2. The rich and poor have this both in common. The Lord is maker of them both. Our culture likes to divide people by class, the rich against the poor. They talk about income inequality, and there is always income inequality. There is always a gap between the rich and the poor. No matter what year you live in, no matter what culture you're a part of, that has always existed. Didn't Jesus himself say something about the poor? The poor you will have, what? With you always, right? That's going to be a reality. It's not a matter of wickedness that we have to have everyone be the same income level. And if we have that attitude, we need to examine our hearts because that's not a biblical approach. We may have to examine, are we being covetous? Are we being jealous? On the other hand, we also need to remember this passage from James 2. My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. This verse, this passage from verse 1 all the way through verse 7 flies directly in the face of the prosperity gospel. James continues, he says, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The gospel of Christ breaks down the walls of class prejudice, uniting us from various socioeconomic backgrounds. Christians should not evaluate people based on their economic status, but based on their status as humans who bear the image of God. You may feel uncomfortable if you see someone who's dressed in shabby clothes. You may avert your eyes when you see someone on the street corner with a hand-scrawled cardboard sign? Is that an opportunity for us to think, okay, what, what is my attitude about these folks? Is it suspicion? Is it just suspicion? There are people within our assembly that have worked in you know, social social welfare systems that have recognized that, yes, some of those people are frauds. And some of them have severe mental or drug issues. And that's something that we should rightly wrestle with. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, so that I will not be full and denied that I will not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And that I may not become impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God. We need to put our confidences, we need to put our confidences in God and not in our finances. When it comes to finances, people go from one extreme to another. And that can happen in our lives as well. I mean even in our even in our lives together you know Kim and I have been you know <laughs> dirt poor scr- scrounging in the in the couch cushions for money to go get some chinese food and then we've had some you know years that we've had very good incomes and your experience may be the same where's our confidence when we go through these extremes. Are we worrying anxiously? Are we proud and arrogant? The Bible makes it clear that true security can be found only in God. And that trusting in riches will destroy us. First Timothy chapter six, verse 17 through 19, a passage with which you're probably familiar. Instruct those who are rich in this present age, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And certainly, how many of you have 401Ks or, you know, and what's happened to that? We have, we have our retirement account through LPL, and a good brother, Will Bomberger, is one of the managers of that. I don't even open <laughs> the LPL envelope <laughs> because I know that nowadays it's gone down, all right? We're going to trust God for our future. Our wealth and possessions are temporary and can easily be wiped out in an instant. I spoke to someone just, was it yesterday? No, it was Friday. And that person had been involved in the mortgage business in 2008. And some of you are involved in the mortgage business now. It's tenuous you cannot predict what's going to happen if we're struggling with our finances we must remember that God himself is our refuge and that he cares for those who trust in him Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7 we shouldn't be anxious about our money problems we must do our part we must work well we must be diligent to manage our finances but most importantly we need to learn to trust God fully now The reality is financial needs are an opportunity to trust God. Isn't it amazing when you think about this as a biblical principle that our money has on it, most of it right now, in God we trust. Anytime you handle money and you see that phrase, it's a good opportunity for us to to ask that question am I really trusting in God, am I trusting in my finances, am I trusting in the present administration to secure the financial stability of the dollar? Where is my trust? It's an opportunity for us to trust in God himself. Well, let's talk about ways to master finances within our treasured marriages. How do we master finance within our treasured marriages? Well, first, it is wise to remember that earning capacities will change. Generally speaking, as people approach their, what we call their times of being middle-aged, generally, that's going to be the highest level of income for most people, and then as we approach the golden years, Some of us with snow on top of the teepee are in that phase now. That income level can decline. So it's wise to remember the general trend, that your earning capacity will change. The average adult will earn over $1 million in our lifetime, so we must understand that management of our money is as important as our earning capacity, which will fluctuate. Also, another financial financial principle to remember is that of interest and compounded interest. You and I need to learn the principle of simple and compounded interest. Invest the money that we save so it can begin producing a harvest for us. The more our money makes, the less we have to deposit into somebody else's money machine. We need to remember The idea of saving up, saving up before spending. Financial planners generally suggest saving at least 10% of our income per month. We have three different accounts, a short-term savings for major purchases, a long-term savings for retirement or college tuitions for the future, or an emergency fund. Saving up money before making a purchase is one of the smartest ways to keep out of financial trouble, says Dr. Gustafson one of the key U.S. financial planners. By having money and setting aside for big-ticket items, we won't be tempted to use credit to pay for them. This is another biblically-based financial principle. Proverbs 21, verse 20 says, be sensible, store up precious treasures. Don't waste them like a fool. That's from the contemporary English version. Proverbs 6, verse 6 and 8 describes the ant who saves during times of plenty. It's wise to save some of our income. It's wise to save some of our income. Proverbs 30, verse 24 and 25, again, talks about the ant. Four things on earth are small, but they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. And again, a very important principle is this. Bless you. Debt is a poor master. We need to avoid unnecessary borrowing and debt. Now, I'm not going to dictate to anybody how their debt should be arranged, designed, shaped. You know, it is not a bad thing to have a mortgage. There are some people who will tell you that it is. I don't believe that that's biblical. I think that's putting a weight, a burden on people. That's not appropriate. But in general principle, while there's a spectrum of view on Christians about debt, some believe Christians should never own a credit card or take out a loan, while others feel the Scripture allow for measured, wise use of credit. But there's no question that debt is always a poor master. Proverbs 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. If you and I become burdened with a huge load of debt, In essence, we become a slave to our creditors. We no longer have the freedom to decide how to spend our paycheck because we're obligated to meet these debts. Now, that's especially critical with some people who get married and think that they need to have a fine house, they need to have a house full of new furniture, they need to have one or two new cars and shoulder all of that through debt and long-term financing. I don't think that's the wisest approach, and I think we need to be very careful about setting expectations, and I see some young married couples smiling and nudging each other. (laughs) Be wise with regard to the debt that you accumulate. According to a 2018 report from creditcards.com, the average credit card interest rate in the United States is around 17%, and having worked for American General Springleaf, one main, I know that that can go above 20% easily. If you have a interest rate of only 17%, you can pay 170 in interest, 170 in interest annually for every $1,000 of debt. According to this 2018 report, the average credit card interest rate in the United States at 17% Letting the balance carry month over month, you quickly end up owing far more than the original price of your purchase. As of September 2022, consumer debt is $16.5 trillion. With the average American debt of consumers, I, I'm going to ask you, what's the average American debt of consumers as of September of this year? including house yeah individual yeah take a guess 20,000 30 do I hear 40 40 45 40. how about ninety six thousand dollars average consumer individual debt Wow Another financial advisor, Erica Sandberg, recommends only using credit cards if we're able to pay the full balance on a statement each month so you don't have to pay interest. On a personal note, that's what Kim and I do. Partially because we use a Southwest Airlines card, we get mileage, and Kim uses that to go visit her parents, her, her mom, in New England. But we pay it off, we never pay interest, uh, we never carry it to the next month. And if you have to, use a card, pay it off as quickly as possible, starting with a credit card that has the highest interest rate. And if you're hearing echoes of Dave Ramsey, yes, I am echoing part of Dave Ramsey. And I do recommend, if not going to one of his courses, at least listen to him on the radio at 1280 a.m. in the morning. Some great principles there. We need to minimize or eliminate, we need to minimize or eliminate our debt. Since we are depositing that money into somebody else's Money machine. Remember that when we have debt, we are controlled by the bank or mortgage company and it is their rules that are applied in uncomfortable and uncontrollable situations. You need to remember that your mortgage, if something catastrophic happens, the lending institution can demand you pay everything very quickly. As much as possible, stay away. Again, debt is not evil but we should avoid it and pay it off psalm 37 verse 21 the wicked borrows and does not pay back and of course the compliment to that is the righteous person will indeed pay back what they owe okay it's not wicked it's not evil but if you have the debt we should pay it off Let's talk about something else, shall we? (laughs) Let's be generous, and let's make it a lifestyle. The Bible teaches generosity is a way of life, regardless of of our level of income. And if you go through the epistles in the New Testament, you find the apostle, you know, God through the apostle Paul, praising those who gave sacrificially, even though they didn't have a lot to begin with. And time and time you see God holding up As examples, those who give out of extreme poverty. Just astonishing. God calls us to live generously through tithes and offerings. Tithing is an intentional practice to remind us of God's sovereign ownership of all that we have. Now, there's a wide divergence of opinion concerning tithing. Am I required as a New Testament believer to tithe? Do I tithe from the gross? Do I tithe from the net? (laughs) There's a wide variety of opinions on that. It is not my job to give you a hard and fast rule, but to encourage you to examine your finances and to examine the principles that God has given in the Word of God. Some people say that the idea of tithing, which could go up to 22% of your income, through the Old Testament economy is not mentioned and is eliminated in the New Testament however Jesus himself in talking to the scribes and Pharisees talked with them about how they tithe mint and dill and cumin, the smallest spices but they neglected charity and grace and Jesus said you need to do the charity, you need to do the grace. But he also said, you don't neglect the tithing. Look that up. Think about that. What does that mean? Does the New Testament believer who has been given the greater view of God's mercy and grace in Christ Jesus, should the heart response be lower than that of the Old Testament saint who didn't fully understand? How should our hearts be motivated to give generously and be effusive with our finances and to hold them with an open hand? I would recommend that you start with the 10% of whatever income comes in the door. You decide if it's gross or net, all right? Kim and I have done that since our marriage. The first thing that we do, you know, we sought to follow the passage in Malachi, we sought to follow the passage in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. The tithe is 10% of a person's increase, Deuteronomy 14, which is given to support the ministry and work of the church. When we tithe, we show God we are putting first in our lives. The real beneficence of tithing are those of us writing the checks. Proverbs 3, verse 9 through 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. The tithe was to be the 10% of the first fruits coming in. So again, our practice doesn't have to be yours. You may do things a little differently. There's grace, all right? But the first check that we would write would be that percent that we set aside. Again, general principle that some Christians use, you don't have to do it but talk about it. Read the scriptures. Come to a solid understanding and conviction you know, among yourselves as to how the Lord would have you run your finances. Some people would say, okay, well, that's a tithe. What about offerings? Hey, general principle, be generous. You know, if God has given you the means to be a blessing to other people, how many of you have been a recipient of some generous Christian? Yeah, you know, I have. Kim and I have. Very thankful for that. A simple principle of tithing 10% first, saving 10% second, and living while remaining 80% can be a good starting line. So again, general principle, tithe 10, save 10, stay within the rest of the 80% if you can, All right? General principle. You know, should, you, should both couples work? Should one person work and one person stay at home? Those are larger questions that we'll be addressing later on, but again, those are questions, practical issues. Whether you're single, if you're a fiance, or if you're a married couple, you need to wrestle with. Let's remember to give to others. Let's remember to give to others. Acts 20, 25. You know, the apostle is saying, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. We should give unconditionally even when recipients cannot repay. That could be donating to charity, buying someone a gift. We have a tree out in the lobby now. That's a way for us to be a blessing during Christmas season. It's a great ARC project that you can be a part of. Involve your family in it. Teach your children how to be giving. You know, that's, what, that's part of the reason why we did the cake mix, so that the kids could maybe give that out of their allowances or put the gospel track on on the cake? When we need to exercise wisdom in how much we give, we shouldn't be so tight with our money that we're reluctant to part with anything. As with tithing, God blesses us when we're generous. When we have the desire to share, God gives us the means to do so. Not everybody has the same financial means, and that's okay. But God loves a cheerful giver. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through eight, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, which had both rich and poor in it, Now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do you hear the principle there? Do you hear the principle? Each one must do just as he has proposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. The apostle is not laying a hard and fast rule with regard to everybody has to give this much. And, you know, so there is grace. And if you know of someone that has a different practice than you do, praise God. Let the Spirit of God convince them. We cannot, however, be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Deuteronomy chapter 15, 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight fisted against them. When we give to the needy, again, another principle, we're not to blow the trumpet. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2 and 5. If we do that, we have our reward in full. So, give it so that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Or this right hand. No t- <laughs> Next, very important, and it doesn't matter if, you're, if you've been married for 20 years, 30 years, if you've just been married a few months, or if you're going to be married, follow a budget and plan. Proverbs 27 in verse 23 says this, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. So if you have a flock of $100 bills, if you have a herd of $1 bills, If you make it rain up in here, (laughs) then you're responsible to know how many of those you have. Right now, my wife and I are playing a game of Monopoly. I am property rich and cash poor. She has thousands of dollars. (laughs) I hid her money. (laughs) I gave it back. We're just playing with each other but she knew how much money she had. <laughs> and in real life too, that's, that's an important principle to have. You know, if the opportunity comes up, you need to know what money you have to pay the bills or to take advantage of a financial opportunity. We need to be aware of how we're spending our income so we can know whether we need to make adjustments in our spending. Budgeting helps avoid impulse and unnecessary spending. Living within our means and preparing for future needs Says Bill Gustafson, who is the Senior Director of Center for Financial Responsibility at Texas Tech, says this. If we don't carefully plan our finances and direct them where to go, we will one day find ourselves broke. So to set up our household budget, we need to figure out how much we spend each month for different categories, such as housing, food, transportation, entertainment, clothing, and the like, and compare that to our monthly income. If our expenses are more than our income, we need to cut out unnecessary purchases. If you can't use Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, get some envelopes. It's very simple. Your grandmother, your great grandmother did that. And if there ain't no money in the envelope, you don't have money to spend on that that topic, right? Once we've established a budget, use a ledger or budgeting program uh, to start tracking monthly expenses. And then if you need to make adjustments, work together. The picture here is that of a husband and wife going over their budget. And I do recommend for every treasured marriage, both of you should be engaged in understanding what treasures you have been allotted. I hate sitting down and having the financial discussion. My job is to kill the dinosaur and drag it home. I give it to the little woman she cuts it up. That's my mental status. But it's also my job to appreciate the wisdom and stewardship that my wife practices and to understand what money we have and what the guidelines are. So if you find yourself in a relationship where you have two different people like Kim and I, you know, who's the spender? Who's the saver? You know, work together to balance your budget and to live within the budget. There's much greater peace and satisfaction there. If anybody has any questions on that, if you've not set one up, I do highly recommend and uh, you know, there are budgetary tools that are out there. If you want to borrow this one, you can. Copy that and use that. There are plenty of online budget assessments um, and I strongly recommend doing that um, so something very important in your budgeting consider the cost consider the cost and of course you know we're taking the, the biblical principle from Luke chapter 18, 14 where Jesus talked about someone considering to build a tower you sit down first and you consider the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it so that you're not thought of as a fool you have a half completed tower and you and I could go online and we could, we could do research, unfinished construction projects. We can see bridges that are going to nowhere. We can see towers that are not finished. We could see complete cities in China that are completely empty. We could see similar projects in the United States. Consider the cost. Well, what does that mean to consider the cost? Well, I think there's some very practical issues that keep us from ruining our budget. Consider the cost by asking various questions. Do we really need it? Are we buying more than we can afford? Does it do what it advertises? Can I really get a four-person sleeper uh, RV for $19 because of the ad on Facebook? Really? Will it soon be broken? Probably that trailer would soon be broken. Can we delay the purchase right now? You know what happens, the latest iPhone. 79 or whatever the number is, I, don't, I have no idea. Comes out and it's you know, $15,000 and in a month and a half it's $145 in change, all right? Can we delay the purchase? Does my use justify the cost? How much will it cost to upkeep? How much will it cost to upkeep? Will the family have equal time using it? On how much will it cost to upkeep? For example, if you buy a Bugatti of own, it's gonna cost you $20,000 to change the oil you may be able to afford the Bugatti Vero. Can you afford the oil changes? I don't know. Will my family have equal time using it? Am I paying unnecessary interest? You know, I put those down on your uh, handout and I do recommend looking at those. Well, we need to speed up here. I do highly recommend engaging in uh, formal long-term financial planning. We need to think and plan for the future. A wise man thinks ahead. Careful and prayerful, planning helps grow savings for the future. Proverbs 13, verse 6, a wise man thinks ahead, a fool doesn't, and even brags about it. Proverbs 21, verse 5, the plan of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. It is helpful to have a written plan with goals, objectives, and a budget. The average person does not we rarely attain what we haven't defined. Plans can be reviewed at least annually, and I recommend minimum monthly. Some of you may want to do it weekly. So goals are adjusted as situations require. And I do want to encourage you to think about what documents you need to be responsible, which include your will, revocable trust, financial power of attorney, and durable power of attorney for health care. If you're married, if you have children, these are really important. Very few people have these. You can go online and get the forms. They don't cost a lot. Get them filled out and have them sign in front of a, rota- a notary. Not a rotary, a notary. It's not that difficult. I do want to recommend engaging a professional. These are the seven baby steps of Dave Ramsey. He's got some good wisdom. You may not buy into all of it, but there are some good thoughts here. You may want to engage with a financial professional like a Will Baumberger or other people who will help you. You need to understand risk. Every investment has risk, and you must define all the choices in one of three categories, minimum, moderate, or aggressive. Utilizing an investor profile will allow you to establish a baseline risk tolerance with which to compare our investment options. We need to consider the impact of taxes. Income tax will affect your return, as we must pay Caesar what is Caesar's. So qualified investments like 401k, IRA, IRA, and pensions defer principal and interest until they are removed from the account. If if you have access to that as as early as possible in your career, take advantage of those. Live on a remainder and remember to diversify. Avoid risk by having your investments diversified. Grandpa always said don't have all your eggs in one basket, and that's what diversity means. If you have money in the stock market, you might want to suggest an index strategy that buys one of every type of investment in the marketplace. Well, that's all the time that we have for today.